Tennessee versus the NCAA Volume 3 as we got Danny White putting out a statement. And Danny White revved it up a little bit, took it up a notch, said he wanted all of his friends in the industry to hear it straight from him. You got it for us. You can just go. This is what we call Bob reading. Yes, this will be my uh, my little excerpt. Uh, I'll, I'll just read to you what uh, Danny White said because he would like a word now with the NCAA. The NCAA generally does not comment on infractions cases because there's a rule against it. However, that has not stopped them in the past from leaking information to the media as they did this week about us. Their actions made this ill-conceived investigation public and forced us to defend ourselves. It is clear that the NCAA staff does not understand what is happening at the campus level all over the country in the NIL space. After reviewing thousands of Tennessee coach and personnel phone records, NCAA investigators didn't find a single NIL violation, so they moved the goalpost to fit a predetermined outcome. They're stating that the nebulous, contradictory NIL guidelines, written by the NCAA, not the membership, don't matter, and applying the old booster bylaws to collectives. If that's the case, then 100% of the major programs in college athletics have significant violations. This is obviously silly and not productive, as is blaming the membership whenever they are challenged. We need to be spending our time and energy on solutions to better organize college athletics in the NIL era, something that NCAA leadership failed to do back in 2021. Student-athletes, prospective student-athletes, coaches, and administrators across the country deserve better, and I refuse to allow the NCAA to irrationally use Tennessee as an example of their own agenda. All the best, Danny White. He didn't say that at the end. That was, uh... that, that was you adding it in. Yes. He, he did not wish the NCAA all the best. What I will say is that, to me, the big takeaways are the very first thing he said and the very last thing he said. Mm-hmm. Everything in the middle, you know, it was just kind of details. But the thing at the beginning where he's like, hey, he basically quotes what the NCAA says and then turns it around on them. You know, where he's talking about how the NCAA said they don't usually discuss accusations or discuss. How do you say it? They um, don't usually discuss. They generally do not comment on infractions cases. Right. He says because it's against the rules to do so. <clears throat> like the NCAA is not allowed to comment on anything. So like they have broken their own rules that we've agreed upon by commenting on Tennessee. And then at the end where he says he's not going to allow, what do you say, the NCAA to make Tennessee basically the 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 scapegoats and and try to make an example out of Tennessee, use Tennessee as an example for all of their failures. That's right. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, it's yeah. I refuse to allow the NCAA to irrationally use Tennessee as an example for their own agenda. Um, yeah, and what we've learned about Danny White just recently too, where we were reminded of it is, I mean, he's going to throw down on topics about seating arrangements in the arena. So when it when you come after his athletic program, uh, like I said, he decided to have a word, and it's just uh, it's it's consistency in the the thread of conversation that's coming from Tennessee in all of this. Um, it's been pretty interesting, and <clears throat> as I mentioned to John during the break, uh, there's it seems to me that if you're on social media and on X and you're looking around at some of the at least some of the other uh, media figures I follow nationally, uh, there continues to be, maybe it's not specifically towards Tennessee, but it's towards the topic in general. And I mean, I, I think there's 
there's definitely a groundswell of, hey, what the hell are we doing here, you know, and, and pointing that at the NCAA. Yeah, I just kind of laughed yesterday at, at Stuart Mandel, who within like a couple hours had went from, man, Tennessee, cheaters, and Tennessee's going to be in trouble, and Tennessee made a mockery of, of NIL and the NCAA to – then quote tweeting that and being like, well, yeah, there's nothing the NCAA is going to be able to do about it, though. Like, basically, like, nothing nothing happens that is going to be punished. They're going to win. And I was almost like he was just kind of bending the knee and realizing, like, yeah, the more I talk to people and the, the more people realize that, you know, nothing's going to happen to Tennessee, that they're going to win this battle. I believe so, yeah. that's I'm getting the same take on that. One of the things I thought while reading Danny's statements, and I don't know if it stood out to you or anybody else, but I, when I was reading, I was like, huh, I actually think Danny wrote this. Like when, oh, yeah. When I read Plowman's, I was like, you know, she probably had it outlined, but maybe they, you know somebody touched it up or you know, maybe they went to a firm that kind of put it out and you know, made it sure it was technically sound and tight, and maybe you ran it by the lawyers to make sure, like, hey, you're not saying anything you don't, you're not supposed to say. When I read Danny's, like, that was just him kind of just putting that out himself putting his statement out, putting his name on it, and not really passing it by anybody else to, to comb over. I would agree with that. I was just looking at one of uh, Barrett Salee's comments. Uh, the NCAA coming at Tennessee for breaking NIL rules that didn't exist yet is like me getting mad at my kids for staying up late when I never told them when to go to bed. Um, I mean, there's you can just find dozens of these across social media. I mean, everybody's just – I. Can't feel great to be an NCAA staffer at the moment. No, no, it can't. And then I saw, you know, some people at Tennessee message boards who were calling the NCAA to try to do their own research and ask questions. And they're just like, please refer to the rules online. The rules change constantly. Just please refer to the rules online. We're not having this discussion and we don't even know the rules really. Just they, they change and please follow them online. <laughs> That's what we tell everybody to go online and look at the rules. I mean, on, on one hand, we'd say Barrett Salee, I, I kind of. I'm like, yeah, he, he's a guy that's trying to kind of ride the wave of Tennessee of likes course. and retweets and like, hey, here you go. I'm on your side, Tennessee. I got your back. Like me. Retweet me. On the other scope, you have the people who are like, hey, I hate Tennessee. Argue with me. If you hate Tennessee, agree with me. Like me. Retweet me. It's We've, we've had that conversation the last couple of weeks of just Tennessee being a lightning rod. You know, we talked about the Titans being kind of insignificant, but on the other hand, the Vols being college football's lightning rod. You could typically get your impressions up, your engagements up, if you talk about Tennessee. And I was also thinking, there's a lot to talk about with Tennessee. It feels like we are the most interesting program in, in athletics. Like, I have felt that way about a long time. I mean, it's not all been good. A lot of it's been bad. But you can't say that being a Tennessee fan in the last 10 years has been boring. Even the last 15 years, you can't say it's been boring. Had a lot to do, a lot to talk about. I agree. It was a little uh, almost borderline embarrassing at a few points, and we're way past that now. That's It feels good now because, you know, programs are good. We're in a position now that's happening with the NCAA where it feels like, again, we've, we've touched on it all week, the administration's strong here, and uh feels like it's clear they're not going to lay down. They're they're going to fight this thing to the end, and uh, it's a it, yeah. I, I would agree though. We're we're definitely uh, on on people's minds right now, and more positive than it used to be. It was tough 
three, four, five years ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, when I say that it's been interesting and that you've been a lightning rod, sometimes that's bad. You know, it hasn't been yeah. all good. It hasn't been boring. Never. It hasn't been boring. But, yeah, no, there have been some definitely low lows. <clears throat> and I think there's been some pretty high highs. And I do think we're in the midst of another high. I do think that. And I, 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 I wear the response from our administration and our fan base kind of as a badge of honor. You know, it is kind of nice to kind of fight against an institution. Called it galvanizing the other day. It does feel galvanizing. It does feel like something that, you know, excites people. And quite frankly, I think it's something you could be proud of. You know, when you look at your three-headed monster over there of Boyd, Plowman, and White, like those guys are, those guys and lady are, are good. You're in good hands. I mean, I sent it on a group text yesterday, that picture um, of uh, the the Don Day t-shirt that's out there. It's like, how often do university chancellors have a positive piece of merch in their name? Yeah, you almost always hate your administration, right? Yeah. You almost always hate your administration. Think of them as like the referees in, in games, typically. Like you, you either don't notice them and don't have a strong opinion on them, or you hate them. It's typically how it works. Like that's they're in a position of power. You don't usually like people in positions of power. Either you, ah, eh, they're fine. I don't really have an opinion, or like, oh man, they're awful. They're a joke. They're embarrassing. Jimmy Cheek eats his boogers. I mean, that was the thing whenever I was your age, Sam. Like whenever I was in school, our chancellor got accused of eating boogers. That's legit. I don't know if you ever heard that. Didn't know that. But they always talked about Jimmy Cheek was eating boogers, and they had had him on TV eating boogers. Apologies to him or his family if they're listening. I don't even know if Jimmy Cheek's still alive. Hopefully he is. After saying if he's listening, because I don't want somebody to be like, oh, actually, he's not with us anymore. I hope, I hope that's not the case. But that's the, that was the vibe you had about your chancellor during that time and your leadership during that time. Dave Hart's a jerk who takes up all the good parking spots on campus. That was another thing. Now you got uh, leadership over there that you look at and you're, you're proud of. And like Bob said, you're making T-shirts for you're cheering at basketball games. Think about Roger Goodell. Just how many times he got booed, you know, coming out to do his draft. That's kind of the that's, – that's how you usually treat authority and leadership. Someone on Twitter said uh, Dante Plowman has gone from shutting down parties in the fort to becoming the George Washington of Tennessee athletics in four years. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't even think about that. But, yeah, I mean, she, she had the unenviable task of trying to run a college and, and control 18- to 22-year-olds that want a party – during COVID mm -hmm. to now like saving your, your football program, or at least trying to champion your football program and, and take it to, to new heights or get it back to old heights. I guess I should say, yeah, quite the, uh, the face turn for her, at least in the student body. Yeah. I mean, if she walked out a couple of years ago after what she had done to the students and their party and she probably gets, probably gets booed. Said now she gets a loud pop. I got nothing else on this today. You guys got anything else on on, on on round three? Danny White, we'll keep you updated on the battle. There'll probably be something else today or something else over the weekend. We'll have some developments, but I've said all I need to say about it. Bob, you got anything you want to add? No, I just think, uh, again, balls in the NCAA's court. They've, they've already done, um, we'll use this term, a boilerplate response to some degree. Um, and then, like you said, John, for some people who are inquiring on their own, they're, they're giving them another patent response of, uh, you know, just we'll, we'll be in touch. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how quickly they respond again. I don't know if they will, but 
because uh, there's a lot of talk that this thing will just drag out too, um, which which is kind of their game. I do wonder if the NCAA has any prod. Like, is there some man that office like? Damn, Tennessee. We'll show them. They might beat us in court, but we're going to make this as hard on them as possible. If they want to be cute and send these little posts out and rally everybody against us, we're going to really try to go at them now. Uh, does anybody over there have any pride? Or they're kind of just like, hey, guys, let's just, uh, we're losing this. We're looking like a joke. Let's have some pride, actually, and not be stubborn, and let's just not embarrass ourselves anymore. There's um, one more thing I want to share. Of course, I have to find it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was this. A buddy of mine and I were talking, and this was uh, right when everything was dropping. It was right, we, we went, he went to the Tennessee-South Carolina game with me, and we were out having an adult beverage beforehand, and um, <clears throat> he texted me last night because we were talking about the NCAA in general, and this guy's pretty well immersed in NCAA sports, does a lot of work with ESPN, et cetera. And he wrote, I was thinking what we were talking about the other day in regard to the NCAA. In 2022, the NCAA generated $1.4 billion in revenue. As a 501c nonprofit, they're taxed exempt. Where the expletive does all that money go? His point is, who investigates them? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, ni- it's nice to be just considered a nonprofit and just make a bunch of profit. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's some of the obvious stuff we've already talked about. It goes all the way back to the O'Bannon case and everything else. And some of that's getting, you know, supposedly righted with NIL. But now the NCAA has got a problem with how that's all happening. And it just feels a little rich to hear all that. Is the NFL is also a nonprofit, right? I don't know. I think so, but I don't think so. I don't know for a fact, though. I shouldn't just say that with certainty. I, I don't know. I see a story from 14 that says, why is the NFL a nonprofit? And then in 2015, Tom said the NFL suddenly wants to pay taxes, so maybe they like gave up their tax exempt status, or maybe gave up that and yeah. wanted to kind of eventually start paying taxes. I don't know. but Boy, that, that would be <laughs> – that's that's a hell of a nonprofit. If, uh... I, I, I'd always heard that, I thought, but, yeah, I guess in 2015 maybe they changed that. Yeah, this article in 2015 says NFL ends tax-exempt status after 73 years. God. Yeah. Well, I kind of by surprise when we were talking about lawyer. I mean, that when you heard that, like, the, the collective is also considered a nonprofit. And, like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. When you hear nonprofit, whenever it's not like a charity, it kind of throws some red flags out to me, at least. Like, what are you doing if you're not, you know, a nonprofit? Like, hey, I'm giving money to the Boys and Girls Club or, you know, something I, like that. I do wonder... You know, he touched on it a little bit, too. Um, I do wonder what this means. We've talked about what it means potentially for the NCAA. I do wonder what it means for collectives long term, because uh, they have been able to operate freely for a little while. And, and that isn't – I would agree that that's probably – look, the NCAA has made this bed by not getting involved at the outset. We've talked about that, but – as a result, you know, if they do get some level of congressional support, are they going to be able to reel in these uh, collectives? Because it does feel super squishy. I mean, there's people I talk to around the country who are, they're like, hey, I've got a, I'm starting my own collective. I mean, it's like just. It's, Anybody can do it, right? It's right. Like you can get the clients. I yeah. Mean, we, we can start our own collective. It's right. It's just whether or not we'd want to 
jump through the hoops and make sure everything's legal and if we could, you know, compete or do anything worthwhile differently, right? Partner up with G.I. Jake's show on a collective. Um, we'll take, we'll, we'll, we'll fade his picks and that's we'll how we'll get money. our money. And then, yeah, if you want to be a, an athlete, we'll, we'll, we'll help pay you out. But I guess in, in the collective sense, the idea is like, hey, all the money we raise, we pay our expenses, we take our salaries, and then everything else gets distributed to the athletes, right? So I guess there is no profit laying around. So I mean, I guess yeah, that, that, that's why it would be a nonprofit. I understand how that works, but it still seems, uh, I don't know, just weird. There, it is weird, and there's all, you know, think about the big high-profile ones. Um, Spire probably fits this mold. All that money that's flown in from donors, too. I, It's just, it's a lot. It's a lot coming in and out. And so... Uh, from a, you know, we talk about taxation, other things. I mean, there's, it, it's again, it's squishy. I will say that I do think that's been one thing on my mind is what does happen to collectives in general um, as a result of this. We keep talking about, man, this could take the NCAA down. Could, um, very possible, but also collectives may have to get kind of uh, rebranded, so to speak. You know, I don't really like the guy. I don't really agree with almost anything he says, but. It's a nice move by Clay Travis yesterday to try to to lead and help Tennessee's collective, and and people have said that he's donated a lot over the years to Tennessee's collective, but was trying to do a drive to get the the Vol Club up to what five thousand members, and said if they got to five thousand members, he'd cut a hundred thousand dollar check to him himself. We we I don't really like him, but credit where it's due. That was a nice move. It's a good yeah. way to like win. You know, like a, it's it's a popular thing right now to support Tennessee. If you're in the state, like ride that wave, get your retweets and likes, get your goodwill, fight for Tennessee, but also it's like, hey, you're fighting the establishment, and you know, kind of everyone should get behind that. That's what the country was established on, you know, fighting the establishment. All right, you got anything to add, Sam? I'm done on the collective. Yeah, not really. All right, send us a break. It's the morning show here on Fan Run Radio. Good morning. Just a couple of minor accidents out here up to this point. Pippleslippy Parkway already starting to build, passing North Shore. All that traffic coming in from Blunt County, uh, headed out towards the Oak Ridge area here on Pippleslippy Parkway over I-40. Still looks pretty decent at the moment, 275 South here at Woodland Avenue as we check it out live. Cubits Outlet has two locations, one on North Broadway, the other location on the Parkway in downtown Gatlinburg. Cubits Outlet is your Valentine's Day headquarters. I'm Commander Chuck with your on-time traffic. Back on the program, let's get to the phone lines. Let's bring on my friend, Stats by Will, the best college basketball writer in Tennessee. William, how are you today? Doing well. It's sunny, I think. It's uh, nice outside. I've overcome my uh, harrowing Sunday Mm. for the most part. I've Mm. gotten over it, I think. 24 to 7 at halftime. That was well. I, I don't remember. I told you or told somebody, but that was the one scenario before the game where it's like, okay, I'll actually be mad if they lose in this way. So of course they did. Yeah, but yeah, I talked about hard, that on Monday. To, to go from house money, to be like, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just gonna say to go from house money to having your heart broken and blowing that lead. That's the only way you could have been sad. That's the only way they could have broke your heart. So of course that's what happens. Yeah, yeah of course that's what happened. But you play it like this, so you think. All right, Lions, they won two games more than I would have expected. 
Michigan, two games more than I would have expected. Tennessee basketball, two games more than you would have expected. They're in the national title game. Think of it that way, the the season of will. Okay, so instead of an Elite Eight, you win those two extra games and you make it to the national championship. I like the way you're thinking. Before we get to Tennessee-Kentucky, I, I am interested in the fallout from Detroit. Just from your perspective, a guy who is analytical, a guy who does look at the stats and the process more than the result, because I try to do that myself. And, you know, coming out of the Detroit game, everyone was second-guessing Dan Campbell's decisions to to bypass field goals, to go for fourth downs, you know, blaming him for the loss. And the numbers bore out that those were the correct decisions. It's just that the results didn't play out that way. How is a guy that is analytical, that does try to focus on the process, and then, of course, you get the game against South Carolina where Tennessee is getting open shots and doing the things you need to to be a good offensive team and just simply not making the shots, which is kind of a rinse and repeat from Tennessee's failures in March. Like, How do you handle that whenever you're actually like trying to analyze the game and, and do previews and do recaps and think about the state of a basketball team? Tough line to thread, you know? I mean, it's because uh, you're a fan first, so you know, you're living and dying with each play or each you know shot or whatever and in the moment like was I annoyed that Tennessee was like I think that the one that kind of more than the Estrella missed dunk or whatever that sort of summed up that it's just not your night was best could be wide open three from the wing air ball you know that's the one where you're just like all right well this is it is what it is it's just not happening but you know you run into those games from time to time like the example I always like to use is the best offense I've ever seen in college hoops, Villanova, lost three of four during their title run to some pretty bad Big East competition. I mean, it just, college basketball, weird stuff happens from time to time. Um, and largely, like, I didn't hate Tennessee's shots on a Tuesday night. I was actually more concerned about their defense. I thought South Carolina probably should have scored a few more points than they got. Uh, they got some more open looks, and I was personally anticipating them to get. But, yeah, I mean, analytically, I think in the moment I am can be a little more, you know, results-oriented, but I usually will try and go back the day after with a clear mind and watch, like, you know, a 30-minute speed run of the game to sort of feel it out and say, like, oh, that was a good look. It just didn't go down. Yeah, kind of the last thing about South Carolina, then we'll look at Kentucky, but what did you – see when you rewatch the game and you're doing your preview and you're looking at what Tennessee did, what did you see defensively? Because it did seem like Tennessee gave up a lot of open threes. Hey, Will, and uh, this is Bob, if we can, if I can dovetail on that question too, is we've been going back and forth on this. We feel like South Carolina's a good team, but they're such a hard watch. I mean, I'd love to, you know, through your statistical brain or quantitative brain how 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 do you think they stack up as far as a team that has any prospects for march etc well first question here for you know how did they get those open shots i think the, the same sort of through line for attacking tennessee exists regardless of opponent where and we see this mentioned on the broadcast a lot of if you can get to the paint and force those backside threes because tennessee does collapse down especially if adu or the center gets out of position if you can you know, shift the floor enough and move the ball well enough. And, you know, frankly, Tennessee's defense is so good that a lot of teams cannot. South Carolina came in with the right strategy of we're going to attempt 33s and see what happens. I think that is the way to beat Tennessee if you don't have a talent advantage. And 
if you can get those backside threes off in the corner especially, you've got a better chance of those being open. But, again, easier said than done. They did a good job of it, came in with the right strategy. I did not think Michi Johnson played well at all, to be honest. Uh, but he had a couple good passes late to you know elevate his numbers a bit. And, you know, it helps when Cooper and Miles Studi, who I truly cannot wait to see graduate from college after seven years, uh, those guys go a combined seven of eight from three. So, you know, part of it's luck, but part of it was the skill of just getting those good looks in the first place. Carolina for March, I, I do. I think you know they had a solid offensive game on Tuesday. I didn't think it was great, but they were they got a over the finish line. Obviously, they struggled to get easy twos. I've noticed you know you saw them kind of hunt the miss the the, the uh, advantage a little bit with B.J. Mack in the post, but they still went 0 for nine on mid range twos in that game. You know, it wasn't a great plan. Uh, we, we've seen some teams like that go deep before, but I, I think their goal realistically should be, hey, let's get in the tournament, let's win a game, let's see what happens. Because, you know, looking at them right now, I think they're capable of winning one game. I don't think they can win two-plus with that offense. Stats by Will. Subscribe to the Substack. Get your game previews. Will, what do you see whenever you look at this Kentucky team? What's the best way for Tennessee to attack them? Uh, put the ball in Connect's hands. <laughs> I think it's that simple, honestly. I mean, you look up and down the Kentucky roster, and I, I think team defense can kind of get overblown a little bit in college basketball because athletes are athletes. If they lock in, they can, you know, you can get a ball stopper out there, and he can have a really good game. We kind of saw that when Tennessee used to play those bad Will Wade defenses where the athleticism was such a big advantage in LSU's favor. They still had the guys to stop you if they locked in. The problem with Kentucky is they don't have a wing that you can point to as that's your ball stopper because Antonio Reeves, not a good defender whatsoever. Reed Shepard, good defender, but a bit too small. He's 6'2 and connects, you know, 6'6". Six, six. Yeah, I thought Shepard uh, particularly got lost a lot against Florida, uh, you know, on yeah, Wednesday. Shepard like was he gave pretty a bunch of those three brutal pointers. down the stretch. Yeah. And it's a, it's never a good sign when, you know, analytically your best defenders are all seven feet or taller. So, like, Trey Mitchell grades out okay, but the best guys are Onyenso, the tall center, and then Big Z, who's accomplished his numbers in very limited minutes. So you don't really have a wing or a guard on that team that stops somebody getting to the rim. And then if they get to the rim, like, yeah, you might block the shot still. Kentucky's been good at that, but – Kentucky's foul rate is also a lot higher than it's you know than we've been used to over the years. So I, I struggle to see one where this Kentucky defense turns it around going forward unless they get really lucky on teams missing threes. And two, you know, especially for Saturday night, can you stop a drive to the rim not only from connect but if Ziegler gets downhill, can you stop that kickout pass? If Adu gets good post positioning, can you stop him from getting fouled? You know they. They have a lot of answers offensively, but I don't see those same answers on defense. That was going to be one of my questions. You mentioned Onyenso, and uh, we, we had Coach Greg Polinski on yesterday, and we talked a little about him as well. Um, clearly he's gotten meaningful minutes the last couple of games against Arkansas and then Florida, and in that Florida game, you know, eight blocked shots, which is just kind of uh, <laughs> it's a little bit otherworldly. It doesn't happen every game, but this guy is – clearly the one 
version of a rim protector that Kentucky has shown. But do you, you know, to your point, their defensive weaknesses are really clear. But do you think that changes things a little when you have someone like Connect who does like to, as we use the term, go downhill and try to do a lot going to the basket? Um, do you feel that that poses uh, an additional threat that maybe some of these other teams haven't had that Tennessee's faced? Yeah, well, I think I think that's going to be it's going to be really hard for Kentucky to stop that. Just you know, Amiensa's there. He's going to you know I think he's going to get a few blocks this game as long as he stays out of foul trouble. I wouldn't be shocked if they gave Big Z a few minutes, though. I, I noticed you know after that initial explosion against Georgia, he played two minutes against Arkansas, six against Florida. I think the uh, the honeymoon might be over there, but. The, the point is more, you know, like, yeah, you can block some shots at the rim, but if Onyenso starts overplaying the drives, you're going to have a kick out open. You're going to have a do in the dunker spot open. You're going to have some options here. And I, I think that's such a key problem for Kentucky is, you know, maybe you can stop one thing. Can you stop the second thing or the third thing that Tennessee is capable of doing? And, you know, people are probably going to be a little down heading into this game based on Tuesday's performance. I would say, you know, that is really the first, what I would call, poor offensive game since Maui. Like, I I mean, you can look at Tarleton State and say maybe, but Tarleton State was also the last game before the Christmas break. I think Tennessee played the precise amount of basketball they had to to get over the finish line in that game. This is a, an offense with more answers than we've seen in a while for Tennessee, and uh, I don't know. I, I look at this in... You know, if a worse version of this offense in Florida just shredded Kentucky for 45 minutes, it's kind of hard to not see Tennessee getting theirs in this game. Yeah, it seems like the perfect get-right opportunity for Tennessee because, A, after a disappointing loss, you don't want to play the LSUs of the world where the wins don't really matter and you're just kind of waiting for a big game. You're immediately back on the court against your biggest rival, on the road, a win would be a big statement. And quite frankly, at the beginning of the week, I think most Tennessee fans would have locked in a loss to South Carolina and a win at Rupp Arena. So I think you'd be in a good position coming out of the week, or at least an acceptable position. And then, of course, matchup-wise, your offense did finally struggle, but it is a get-right opportunity against a really bad defense or a, a defense that's not active and, and locked down, of course. Have you lost confidence in the other players not named Dalton Connect? Have you, you know, looked at a couple of them and said, hey, are you actually the guy you showed you where, Jonas Adu? Or are you the guy that's going to miss bunnies and not catch the ball and can't be relied upon? What's your level of confidence in those players not named Dalton Connect offensively? I feel fine still about Adu. And honestly, I'm starting to feel better about Vescovy. I think, you know, he missed that key three on Tuesday, but. He's been efficient this year. He's starting to come around. I think he scored double digits in three straight games. Ziggler, I mean, we've seen this. Ziggler doesn't really let these things get to him. He's going to shoot his shots no matter what he played like last time out. The the one guy that I think everybody's worried about correctly is Josiah. Um, just, I mean, you've seen the stats. The SEC performance has been horrific to the point of, uh, I mean, I'm having a hard time here on the call thinking of a six-game stretch in SEC play in his career that's been less effective offensively. And I mean, like, maybe there was a time in his freshman year where he was worse, but that's not good when you're a fifth-year senior and you're having to go back to the freshman year to find a, 
a six-game stretch of worst performance. So this is like, you you hate to say that game seven is the come-to-Jesus game, but really for me, if you can't show it now against this Kentucky defense, Meshack probably should be starting going forward. Do you buy into the concerns that this offense has become too heliocentric around Dalton Connect and that it's hurting the other players offensively? Kind of, but like at the same time, not really. I mean, we've seen heliocentric offenses work just fine at other schools. It, it's obviously more of an NBA thing than college, but I mean, you take it to the women's side. We've seen this work just fine with Caitlin Clark. And with Dalton, I think you have – I mean, arguably the very best pure scorer in the game right now on your team, why wouldn't you feed him nonstop? And when he's creating the way he is both for himself and for others, I think you keep that going until somebody presents a real plan to say no. Do you think that, going back to Kentucky for tomorrow night, do you think that uh, we were talking about this in the segment before with uh, someone from Kentucky Sports Radio, and that was trying to understand – the on Wednesday, Justin Edwards and DJ Wagner did not play. Now we are clearly aware of their defensive shortcomings, but if those two guys happen to not play tomorrow night, does that just make your your position on what Tennessee can do even more profound? I mean, obviously they lose offense there, but is it just that simple? It's just still. Yeah, it's a bad defensive team, and if they have less offensive weapons, then it just stands to reason they're just not they're they're going to be even more beatable. Is there is there any position on that? Well, maybe I I don't think it really affects them defensively because neither is a good defender. Uh, you know, it, Wagner has shown a little, Edwards has shown a little, but both have graded out very poorly on the defensive end. So uh, I would think more so it's an offensive you know, hit for them where, you know, for all of his faults as a shooter, Wagner can get to the rim very well, scores there pretty decently. Edwards struggling to shoot, but same thing, gets to the rim very well, great vertical athlete, kind of hard to defend without fouling. So that that helps Tennessee, I think, more defensively than it would for them on offense. All right, a couple questions on the way out. Appreciate your time as always. Stats by Will. Will Warren, my dear friend, and like I said, the best college basketball writer in the South and the best person covering the Tennessee basketball team. First question, how many points does Tennessee need on Saturday night to beat Kentucky? 80-plus at least, I think. Because, you know, for all their faults, and I do think this Kentucky offense might – it's probably reached peak value for me because I just truly do not believe they're going to shoot 40% from three the rest of the way. This is still at rep, you know, for better or for worse, you know what that means. You got to deal with the rest. And this is not just a rep thing. This is life on the road in the SEC. You got to deal with some unfortunate calls. So I think 80 plus points, that's my barrier. If you get to 80 plus, the offense has done its job. Okay, my, my next question was going to be, what is your main key to the game? Is it just getting to 80 points, or is there something tactically or matchup-wise you're looking for? Well, I, I think, honestly, it, it's sort of a similar strategy to the Alabama game where, okay, you know, we see that 40% number. Let's see what you can do inside the perimeter. Can Kentucky hit mid-range twos? over and over the way they have this season. They're sitting at 44% on those, but you think about it point per shot, 
you'd rather have them take a 44% mid-range jumper than a 40% three. Run them off the line, run them to that 10 to 15 foot mark, and let's see what happens. Okay, out the door. Will, you and I talked a little about this in advance. This is a team that's kind of become a little bit of a a cult favorite for folks like Sam and myself oh, and God, Jordan here Moore. We go. Let's go. <laughs> you talk about shooting 40% from three. There's a team I know who's starting five shoots in excess of 40% from three-point range. It's Indiana State. They are a fun watch, dangerous team come tournament time. Uh, I think you've been paying attention to them as well, um, along with uh, – not for nothing, college Jokic, as they call him, Robbie Avila. Um, any any quick thoughts out the door on them as we jump off Tennessee into uh, another interesting team? Well, if you still got an athletic subscription, I strongly recommend C.J. Moore's piece on Josh Schertz uh, from yeah. this, earlier this week. Terrific guy. I uh, I talked to him when he was at Lincoln Memorial a few years ago, but really good dude. Uh, the way Indiana State plays is league pass ready, I would say. They obviously make a lot of shots, but, you know, perfect shot selection mostly. The defense is also pretty exciting to watch, too, even if they give up some easy buckets. So uh, if you got nothing to do uh, prior to the U.K. game Saturday night, Indiana State Drake uh, at 6 p.m. is going to be a good watch. All right, Will. You sounded happier talking about Indiana State than you did Tennessee, though, to be honest. So, stats by Will. Subscribe to his Substack. Follow him on X. Read his writing. Become smarter when it comes to college basketball. Appreciate you, buddy. Talk to you next week. Have a good weekend. Thanks for having me on. Hour two in the books. We'll kick off hour three. We'll we'll dive into some Tennessee basketball even further. Nine twenty. We'll do some gambling with a what are you calling this, Bob? The the gambling getaway, the betaway, the gambling betaway, the weekend, weekend betaway. There weekend we go. betaway. I found it. The weekend betaway with Eli Herskovich coming up at nine twenty. It's the morning show on Fan Run Radio. Hour number three is brought to you by Knoxville Smiles. Don't put off your dental visits any longer. Dr. Stephen Malone and his staff take pride in listening to and communicating with their patients to help them make the best decisions about their dental health, and they can do it all at Knoxville Smiles. You can contact them at 865-539-1776 to set up an appointment. But let's face it, you're probably going to want to go to the website and look at it first and and go from there. You can do that and tour their state-of-the-art West Knoxville facility virtually at KnoxvilleSmiles.com. KnoxvilleSmiles.com. Before we get back to Tennessee basketball, Bob, we did have an update on Lewis Hamilton and his contract. Yes, sir. Um, can you say rich? Um, well, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Rich. He's going to die trying to spend it. Yeah. Um, Lewis Hamilton will earn over $100 million per year, per year at Ferrari, making him the highest paid F1 driver ever. How many years do we know what his contract was? Don't know the okay. terms, no. Ferrari chairman John Elkin will also put significant money towards Lewis Hamilton's charitable initiatives. How about that? They basically wrote him a blank check. So, If I'm Lewis Hamilton, my ch- I'm making a charity that goes tra- straight to my pocket, the Lewis Hamilton uh, Fund. And then I'll, I'll donate por- you know portions of the proceeds to charity as I see fit. I mean, all those F1 drivers are kind of uh, rock stars. They all make great money. They're all rich. But, I mean, this is like... 
that's a totally different level. That's like almost unheard of at this point. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the exact you know money that this would bring in, but I do know that yesterday, February first, Ferrari stock price was at three hundred forty dollars a share, and that today it's at three hundred ninety. Yeah. You know, I don't know if that means that they have made a hundred million dollars of market share, if that if that has paid for his one year salary or paid for the deal or whatever. But I imagine uh, the investors are pretty happy with the fifteen percent jump in one day. Yeah, that's uh, that's influence, man. That is uh, there's there's very few that could say they have that kind of influence. Yeah, yeah. So from a business standpoint, again, it seems like it has uh, moved the needle. Anything from Willow's conversation stand out to you as we look at Tennessee and Kentucky? Like, he talked about Josiah Jordan-James, and I saw the number breakdown this morning from the guys at VolQuest, but, like, seeing it laid out was a little jarring because you talk about Dalton Connect against South Carolina and him getting as many shots as he did. I believe it was 24, the most he has gotten this year. Uh, and then you look and it says Josiah Jordan-James in his last four games in 108 minutes has shot 11 times. So you got one guy. And I'm, look, I'm, Don Connect had to shoot on on Tuesday. Nobody else was putting the ball in the basket. Nobody else was wanting to be aggressive. Nobody else was making shots or doing anything offensively. I'm not saying Dot Connect was ball hogging. I'm not saying he was shooting too much. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying, though, is that in one game, he had more than twice as many shots as a guy that you thought was going to be one of your team leaders and a guy that you thought was going to be maybe the second or third scoring punch. He shot 11 times in 108 minutes. Again, Sam, 24 shots in like 35 minutes. More than double a guy in 108 minutes. Twice as many shots in 25% of the in 25% of the minutes. You know, just rough math. Maybe it's more like 30% of the minutes, 33% of the minutes, but still. I thought it was really interesting that he was, you know, potentially calling for Meshack to maybe get the start if, if you know, this kind of production from Triple J kind of keeps coming. Well, it's funny because Meshack zero shot attempts in his 15 yeah. minutes. I mean, it is funny, like, hey, we're going to replace the guy that can't score and isn't shooting with the guy that sometimes goes out there and has no interest in shooting either. So, like, I would say if you're going to put Meshack in, somebody's got to be willing to shoot the ball. Like, it's one of those things, like, you just got to take a shot to keep the team, keep, to keep the defense honest and look to score and get up five shots. I mean, it's fine. We can live with that. With the pace Tennessee plays at and the shot attempts they get, if you're a starter, if you're a starter, you, you need to be getting – at least five shots a game. That's not asking too much. Last season, Josiah, and I think he sat out a little bit last year. He, he had did. A, he had some injuries. He but, sat out a lot of the early season. Yeah. I mean, it was basically SEC play whenever he finally started. That's playing. right. But he had um, twelve. Looks like twelve games in double figures in scoring last season. Okay, and that was in an abbreviated season. This year. He's at nine, and I really worry, can he get to 12 to even match that? I, you know, his per-game average last year ended up around 10 points a game. He's down to eight and a half this year. It's not what we anticipated when he was deciding to stay, and particularly 
the way the season started. Um, you know, he, he, again, started out pretty strong for Tennessee overall. I'm looking back to his games this season, 12 against Tennessee Tech, 14 at Wisconsin, 8 against Wofford, 15 and 12 against Syracuse. Then he kind of did a little bit of a vanishing act against Purdue and Kansas, and then 20 at North Carolina. 15 George Mason, 12 against Illinois. That was a pretty good run. He, we forget, he kind of carried the North Carolina State game, 23 points, seven boards. It just feels like that. I can't even remember that now. Five of seven from three in that game, got to the free throw line six times. I mean, that was a game that Connect was uh, – the reports were Connect and Jonas were both sick. They were dealing with a stomach bug, dealing with something. I mean, they, they both played poorly and didn't look right. And you had Josiah and Zakai kind of – I believe Zakai also had a good game that game, kind of stepping up and helping carry that load. But, yeah, I mean, you don't win without the 23 points from James. And then you get, you know, 10 shot attempts in that game, six free throws. You know, that that's a pretty good usage. He's he's getting the ball. He's looking to score. He's being aggressive. And then, yeah, I mean, just the last, last four games, three shots against Florida, three shots against Alabama, two shots against Vandy, three shots against South Carolina. To me, that's just the most head-scratching thing, like, the shooting percentages are bad. I get that. He, he's only made two shots those four games. So of the shots he's actually taken, he's not making them. He's two for 11. But, I mean, it's just a lack of shot attempts. And and, and, and when you lose, it, it's highlighted, right? It's, it, it's magnified whenever you're losing. You start looking at what you could have done differently to make up those points. And then, yeah, you look and you're – when your starters playing a lot of minutes isn't doing anything for you offensively. Yeah, it's true. It's uh, it's tough. You know, we want to see. You know, he's a guy that's played here for a long time. You want to see him ride off into the sunset in a good way, but it it is a reality. What Will was saying, it's there is a possibility we see him get benched at some point here we saw it to Fulkerson yeah I mean, Fulkerson got benched and he was every bit of you know as a favorite for Barnes and the fans and he had paid his dues and you know helped the program grow and all those things I mean you could a lot of the things you say about Josiah you could say about Fulkerson and he got benched and he started coming off the bench whether or not they make that move for Josiah because I do still want to point out like he is still an effective basketball player. He is. He still does things defensively. He does still do things offensively outside of scoring. But I do think Meshack does a lot of those same things. And also, like, I don't want to say Josiah doesn't play with energy. But, like, Meshack plays with a different level of energy. The scrappiness he brings is a lot different than Josiah. I do think on Saturday, Bob, you will see more Mayshack minutes, similar to like what you saw against Arkansas or excuse me, Alabama, where you know he's kind of out there to guard Sears and he's out there getting minutes and and really able to put an impact on the game defensively. I think you'll see something similar on Saturday with the way they attack Reeves and Shepard at times. I would think you're right. And back to Triple J for one second too. I think an kind of an unsung stat with him if you look at like his last eight games, which coincides with a lot of this well it's all the conference games all the offensive ineptitude and everything else and um he's averaged about six to seven boards a game which is you know we use that we throw that term around not for nothing I mean that's 
those are, that's a decent rebounding total. It's just we're stating the obvious, but we just hope we could see more offensively from him. It's been really disappointing in that regard. Yeah, no, I mean he is he is still doing things on the basketball court that are valuable. You know, he is still again I, I'll call him the Draymond Green. He does still do those things. But when you lose, you start looking around and saying you need more scoring. And and Tennessee lost to South Carolina. They didn't score. Yesterday I said it, and I still kind of feel this way. Part of that falls on the rest of his teammates have to pick him up. Like, if, if Zakai comes out and scores 12 points, Tennessee wins that game. If Vescovy scores an extra five or six points, Tennessee wins that game. If Jonas has a better game, Tennessee wins that game. And maybe we're not looking at Josiah Jordan James sideways and saying, hey, score the ball more. But on the flip side, if James does give you six or seven points, you win that game as well. So, like, if the teammates are struggling, you do hope that he has it in him to have to flip a gear and be like, I got to go score some buckets for you. I got I to gotta take over for a couple minutes here and lead this offense and get to the rim and, and put my head down. He did do it at one stretch. You know, he, his only bucket of the game was when Tennessee was in a drought and he got to the, the low block and hit his little turnaround jumper. But, like, he didn't go back to it. Here's an interesting stat cut. Compliments of Jordan Moore. Triple J in Tennessee's five losses. 6.4 points per game. A half an assist per game, five and a half rebounds per game, 1.8 steals, field goal percentage. In five losses, he's shot 32 times, 37.5%, three of 16 from three point range. Fine at the line, five of six. But do you have the numbers in the in wins? Uh, no, I do not. Okay, because the, 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 the point total doesn't really surprise me because, I mean, that's not that far off from just his season average. True. But, like, the assist number, you said he averaged half an assist in Tennessee's losses. To me, that's the the damning part is maybe he's not creating the offense for you either in Tennessee losses. Like, you need him to be a little bit better. He had three assists against South Carolina. But, yeah, like, I expect him to kind of create some looks for people Yeah, if he's not going to score. Because, you know, again, to go back to the Draymond Green comparison, when Draymond's out there, at least he's getting you, you know, ten rebounds, six or seven assists. While playing that defense, Josiah has to at least do other things. And what's crazy is, again, and we we talk about this and we try not to read too much into it, but in the Alabama and Florida wins, you know, he – we've talked about it. Three points against Florida, one point against Alabama, yet his plus-minuses were 27 against Alabama. No, 24 against Alabama, 27 against Florida. I mean, it's like there's some level of efficiency that he can – bring that we're just not seeing and it's like what you said john there's some intangibles that do have value oh yeah no he's still a very valuable player like the the people that grade players and look at the efficiency numbers and look at the the net rating and offensive rating and defensive rating and look at all the stuff more than wins and losses and how many points he scored still rate josiah very highly as a player but it goes back to what i said that ultimately it's about wins and losses and no one wants to hear about what you did (laughs) intangibly when you lose no one needs a glue guy when you lose. The, the glue guy doesn't matter in losses. Glue guys get celebrated when you win. Yeah, I think it was uh, the the Alabama game where I made a comment that – oh, no, it was the Vanderbilt game where I made the comment that he his biggest play, his biggest contribution that I saw in the Vandy game was there was a loose ball, and it was critical point in the game. He dove for it, tipped it back out to the backcourt. We got the ball again, scored. 
And I was like, that was the highlight for him. And it's, you know, again, that's a great glue guy play, but that was it. And that's – team needs more, man. And, yeah, when you bat the ball out, and I believe it Connect went and tracked it down and came down and hit yeah. a three, I think is how that yeah. sequence ended. But, yeah, whatever – his teammates make shots, that looks good. The problem is, when your teammates don't make shots, you don't need a glue guy. You need somebody that scores. <laughs> you, know, you can be a great passer, Sam, but if I put five passers out there and no one's taking a shot, it's just going to be shot clock violation after shot clock violation. If nobody, if everyone's trying to pass and no one's hitting shots, great pass, no finish. So his teammates did kind of let him down. It's just been a little jarring because, you know, you look back to the end of last year for him, it wasn't great. But, like, 11 shot attempts against FAU, 12 shot attempts against Duke, 8 in the first round against, uh, was it Louisiana we played? Yes. I forgot we only won that game by three points. But, I mean, like, you you saw aggression. Those are three games where he shot, what, 31 times? Yeah. Three games, roughly, we'll just call it 95 minutes, 31 shots. I just told you he's played 108 minutes and shot the ball 11 times in four games. What the hell has happened? And it's not like the opportunities aren't there. It's not like, hey, Dog Connect shooting the ball all the time. There's no shots for anybody else. That's not the case. He's pa- he's passing up open looks. He's not what even wanting to shoot. Anyways, we'll do our weekend bet away with Eli Herskovich from the Lions U.S. Is that right? The Lions U.S. The Lions U.S. We'll talk to him next after the break. Stick with us. It's the morning show on Fan Run Radio. So we're heading into a pretty big weekend. We've talked about it a lot. A lot of college basketball that uh, it's going to feel a little bit like Deep March tournament time, some really great matchups. And so for those of you who are so inclined to maybe do a little recreational investing uh, on some of these games, we uh, we like to bring some support and help there. Joining us today for another week is Eli Hershkovich, who is with the Lines US, um, smart wagering expert. Certainly better than I, um, but uh, Eli, just wanted to say welcome. Happy Friday. Yeah, happy Friday, guys. Thanks for having me back on. Happy Friday to everybody but every single member of the Baltimore Ravens. Well, I was going to say, Eli, I was going to say, before we got to college basketball, <laughs> I when I got here on Friday last week, I tried to warn you about the Taylor Swift effect. I tried to warn you about the Chiefs and the (laughs) NFL. And I'll be honest, you completely talked me into the Ravens, and I lost a lot of money on Sunday. That's fair. I lost my Ravens bet. I lost my Ravens futures. Lamar Jackson was... Fraud! Yeah, he was bad. He regressed. Todd Munkin not running the ball with his running backs against the worst or one of the worst rushing defenses in the NFL, cost us all a lot of money, I think. Yeah, what was the deal with that? Was that just a, a case of a coach trying to be too smart and be too cute? Or was it like, hey, we're going to get to the Super Bowl and we're going to do it with our quarterback who you have called a running back and said couldn't throw. We're going to let him carry us. Was that just like a Lamar Jackson statement? Or was it a coach getting too cute and trying to outthink his opponent? I thought it was more of the former. Just, I mean, you go back to the, 
the Bills-Chiefs game, and Bills running back James Cook didn't have the best game on the ground, back up Ty Johnson, had some explosive carries, but it was more so Josh Allen. So it kind of felt like the Ravens were saying, all right, well, the Chiefs were able to stop the Bills' backfield in terms of their actual running backs, so we're going to let Lamar do his thing, and maybe the Chiefs are a little more vulnerable than the metrics say, especially because the Bills didn't necessarily try to generate a ton of explosive passing plays, and when they did, Stephon Diggs dropped the ball. So, yeah, it kind of felt like Munkin got too cute, and when the game got to a two-possession lead for Kansas City, that's when we saw Lamar look like Lamar from a year ago, two years ago, three years ago, especially going back to that divisional round loss in Buffalo, what, the year after he won the MVP, first MVP. Well, I just before we talk to college basketball, I just wanted to thank you for for ruining all the Taylor Swift songs for me because now when I hear it, I'm going to think <laughs> about how I missed out on an opportunity to get Patrick Mahomes at plus money and plus the points because of you, Eli. So thank you. Well, <laughs> well, you could do it again this Super Bowl. How about that? You got another week and a half to get down all the money you want as Mahomes is a dog. I still love uh, you. The, I'll see if the plasma center will will take <laughs> me and let me come in. All right, let's get to some college basketball. <laughs> Yeah, so obviously we've been talking about it. There's um, there's four games this weekend that pair what are the current uh, – it's currently eight of the top ten ranked teams in the country. Now, some of those teams are coming in off the heels of a loss, but they're all big-name brand teams too for the most part. So it should be, uh, should be a fun weekend in college basketball. So I'd love to get your take. I'll just rattle them off in order. You know, on Saturday we've got – Houston at Kansas, we've got Duke at Carolina, we have one that's of particular interest here, Tennessee at Kentucky, and then we have Purdue going to Madison, Wisconsin to take on uh, the Badgers in a game where both teams, I believe, now are tied for first in the Big Ten. Yeah, heck of a college basketball slate. I want to start off with one that only includes one ranked team, though, really quickly here, and it's the number one team in college basketball, the defending national champs, the UConn Huskies. I will say, you want to give me crap about my Ravens, that's fine. Or maybe my Ravens from last year, this past season, just because I am no longer a Ravens future ticket holder. But I had a bet on the Huskies to win it all last year at around 60, 50 to 1, some number like that, going back to the beginning of the season. So, College basketball features, especially early in the year, I've had a lot of success with. And despite me betting the Huskies last year, I think this year's version of UConn is a little fraudulent. And it's not a must-win spot for St. John's, but a pretty big game for the Johnnies. And I have a preview coming up later today over at thelines.com, breaking down St. John's, UConn. One of the bigger areas where you can exploit the Huskies, even though they have a very good up-and-coming big man in Donovan Klingon and Klain Kong, one of the more imposing centers in college basketball, St. John's is one of the best offensive rebounding teams in the country. Joel Soriano is an elite offensive rebounder in his own right, and the Red Storm had the fourth-highest offensive rebounding percentage in terms of an actual statistic in college basketball. So, if St. John's can attack the paint in terms of the offensive glass and also attack UConn's drop coverage with Klingon, St. John's has one of the best mid-range shooting teams in the country, led by Iona transfer Denise Jenkins. That's my upset of the day. I 
am a little hesitant, and we can, we'll get into Tennessee, Kentucky, Duke, North Carolina. I'm hesitant to pick the potential upsets in those respective games, assuming the underdogs line up like I think they will, will in terms of the betting odds. But I really, really, really like Patino and the Johnnies this Saturday. What are we projecting that line to be at tomorrow, around five and a half, six? I think it it could be around high two possessions, to your point, maybe five and a half, six. I think it may open around closer to four and a half. Four. Yeah, yeah okay. four, four and a half. And I actually make this, my numbers make this around UConn minus two. So I, like I said, I'm not super bullish in terms of my own, uh, my own power ratings and my own numbers juxtaposed to the way the betting market perceives UConn and St. John's for that matter. And I also, earlier in the week, I bet St. John's to make the final four right around 22 to one. Uh, kind of a by-low opportunity on this team. You have one of the most experienced coaches in college basketball. You have a veteran-laden roster that dealt with COVID and also just dealt with zero minutes continuity going into this year. So I think St. John's is about to peak. And even if, let's say, this is a close game, another close game loss, which has been the story for St. John's and Big East play, you have two games against Georgetown. You have two games against DePaul. Pretty light schedule the rest of the way. I have no concerns, really, with St. John's making the NCAA tournament. So this is more so just a buy-low opportunity on the number with St. John's, not only for the point spread in this game, but Final Four features as well. Um, It it does seem kind of fitting that on a weekend that Bob laid out four top ten teams playing each other, (laughs) that Rick Pitino could come out of the weekend as the story in college basketball. I was going to say that. I think that, uh, you know, now you got me kind of juiced about this game, too, with uh, the point that you think Connecticut might be a teeny bit overrated. They're going to be playing in the garden. It's kind of tough to to bet against Patino in that kind of scenario, for sure. That's that's pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, and we've seen Patino teams come together at the right time. Obviously, much more talented Louisville team going back to 2013, and maybe not super talented Iona teams over the last few years, but still NCAA tournament caliber teams. And I think he took them to the dance twice. You're going to get a lot of UConn fans at MSG for sure. They're going to pack the place. But I think this is going to be more so 50-50 than most think, or at least comparably speaking to what we've seen UConn guarding games in in recent years. So when we do look at Tennessee, Kentucky, is there a lean for either side or for a over-under projection? Is there anything you're seeing as maybe having value? Or is it such a coin flip that for gambling purposes, it's a stay away? Well, I think it's a stay away for me just because of all the uncertainty for Kentucky, at least as we're talking about this game right now. DJ Wagner and Justin Edwards, both of those guys dealing with injuries. Neither of them played with Florida. Also, you're getting a pissed-off Kentucky team. Going back to that Gators game, Gators lost. First Florida win, by the way. Incredibly, uh, first road win over a top-10 team since 03. And we're talking about a back-to-back national championship team going back to the mid what last couple decades ago when Billy Donovan led Florida to consecutive national titles so pretty wild but yeah I was I was surprised that Kentucky didn't foul up three with less than 10 seconds to go but that's kind of Cal being Cal but to my point you're getting a very motivated spot here for for the Wildcats but health concerns with Wagner and Edwards and also just the fact that Kentucky played and had to play a lot of their guys 
40 plus minutes without Wagner and Edwards against the Gators. You had Dillingham cramping late in that game. I know he finished the game on the court, but Reed Shepard playing all 45 minutes. My one concern with Tennessee matchup wise and numbers wise, if you look at their transition defense and much different Kentucky team than what we saw last year when the Wildcats slept, swept the vowels and yes, you have a very explosive score in Dalton Connect, as you guys well know, that Tennessee didn't necessarily have last season. But the Vols' transition defense is very, very, very exploitable. I brought up how UConn's a bit vulnerable on the offensive glass. Tennessee ranks in the 19th percentile. And when you think about percentiles, 99th is considered elite. And first percentile, the first percentile is considered pretty bad. So, Tennessee's transition defense is on the lower end of things in college basketball. That's where Kentucky was able to take advantage in both of those games last year, along with the offensive glass when they had Shibway. And I think that may be an issue against a really, really explosive Kentucky offense here yet again on Saturday night at Rupp. Yes, Kentucky has the health concerns. And yes, their defense is below league average and then some still just inside the top 100 and adjusted defensive efficiency. But I have my concerns with Tennessee's transition defense. Counter to what we saw with South Carolina, I still can't believe Tennessee lost that game, by the way. I'm sure you guys are still in shock, too, is around a 13.5-point favorite. But transition defense is my worry when it comes to betting Tennessee at Rupp. Yeah, Eli, you had, I, I was you were giving me good memories. I was thinking about Coach Calipari choking away that national championship by not fouling <laughs> up three. And I was thinking, you know, if there's one coach that should have learned foul when I'm up three, especially in college with, you know, six seconds or less. Yeah. And then you had to break up the South Carolina game and choking that one away. So I was going to ask, and I'm going to now, gambling lines and, you know, consumer confidence when it comes to coaches like Calipari, is he still getting inflated from past success? You know, the past Kentucky teams from six, seven, eight years ago that were elite and were good. And is, is that still getting baked into the line or is it now getting kind of judged as like, Hey, it's Kentucky, but it's not the same level of Kentucky that you might used to be a comp, uh, you know, accustomed to. It's a really good question. I mean, you go back to, just to kind of use the example of Coach K at Duke, and you go back to that Final Four game with UNC Duke, Caleb Love hitting the shot that's going to be dug into Duke fans' braids. So at least you don't have that bad memory as a Tennessee yeah. fan. But then again, Rick Barnes has to get to the Final Four for you guys. Okay, so Eli. Okay, I hear you. <laughs> God, now it's coming from other parts of the yeah, country. Yeah, I, I hear you. Exactly, exactly. But – Back to my point, maybe a little bit in terms of market inflation with Kentucky, just in terms of its brand name, but I will give Cal credit because this year, Kentucky, granted, it's about par when it comes to their three-point attempt rate, but it's much better than what we've seen in recent years and really over the last decade from Kentucky. Cal has kind of shifted his offensive approach, so... Uh, To that point, Kentucky, one of the more explosive offenses in the country, not just because of their transition offense, but their perimeter offense is pretty elite as well. Antonio Reeves has really, really made a step as one of the best scoring wings in the country. So I don't want to take that away from Calipari, but defensively and late-game coaching uh, decision-making is still 
not baked into the line, but still kind of in question with him, uh, you know, going back to that Florida game. Eli Herskovich, thelines.com. Sounds like your best bet, at least in the marquee college basketball slate, is UConn goes down, St. John's hangs with them close and wins outright. Is there anything else you're targeting? Yeah, you mentioned Purdue, uh, Wisconsin. I, I still cannot believe, speaking of blown leads, that Wisconsin blew that against Nebraska last night. Heck of a comeback for the Huskers and Fred Hoiberg. And a Badgers team, when you go at the Cole Center now, going back home, motivational spot, kind of similar to the same tune as Kentucky. Granted, it's not like the Vols are going to be looking to bounce back as well after that, or not going to be looking to bounce back after that South Carolina loss. Not to continue to lament on it, but <laughs> with Wisconsin, my concern with the Badgers against Purdue and kind of what we saw late in the second half against a decent Cornhuskers front court, the Badgers rank around average across college basketball post-up defense. And you guys well know Purdue has the best big man in the country in Zach Eady. So we saw it against Northwestern, and Purdue's uh, Eady probably could have put up around 40 points had he not missed what, nearly double-digit free throws, and that's, that was against the Northwestern defense. That is pretty solid in terms of their post-up defense. So I think Wisconsin could struggle in that regard, but still pretty good bounce-back spot for the Badgers and A.J. Store. I don't have Wisconsin power-rated as a top-10 team, but I still have them top-15. And uh, it, depending on what this line is, because you mentioned maybe market tendencies with Kentucky – the market has swayed towards Big Ten home teams this year, and rightfully so, because Big Ten home teams have dominated, dominated like we saw with Nebraska last night. So depending on where this number opens up, maybe if Wisconsin is around one and a half, two, I would shy away. But pick them, slight underdog. I think you could take a pretty nice motivational spot here situationally with the Badgers. Hey, sticking with Big Ten for a second, Eli, you just mentioned it. So, you know, Nebraska gets a big win last night. They've beaten two top five teams roughly with Wisconsin and Purdue. They go on the road on Sunday as well at Illinois. Um, but we, you just mentioned it. Uh, home teams are showing some, some power in the Big Ten. But can Nebraska kind of keep the magic going, do you think, in a game like that? It's a good question, and I would probably say no. That's now, I, I say that with a caveat that the line for that game is probably going to open near double digits, close uh, probably around the same number, just because I would expect the market to maybe fade Nebraska off of that loss. Now, with that said, I'm not super, or at least as high on Illinois as maybe college basketball voters are when it comes to the AP Top 25 poll, but I just don't like that situationally for Nebraska coming off of an emotional win and then some in overtime going up against Illinois at home, to your point. Maybe not the most elite defense inside the top 30 when it comes to adjusted defensive efficiency, and those are the metrics I like to look at when you look at not just overall defensive efficiency, but adjusted per the average opponent and also strength of schedule and all that stuff. And looking at Illinois' offense, though, top five in adjusted offensive efficiency and Nebraska's transition defense to that point can be exposed like we saw in the first half when Wisconsin was really rolling last night. So I know there are questions about Terrence Shannon Jr. off the court. He's back for Illinois, though. Pretty switchable big in Coleman Hawkins. Uh, you guys took care of Illinois in Knoxville when the Illini came to town back in December. 
I thought that was a good spot to fade the Illini off of that. FAU win at Madison Square Garden, speaking of New York and the Johnnies and UConn and whatnot. But I like Illinois here in this game, at least to win the game outright. I'm not saying to bet them as a nine-point favorite just because that can get kind of dicey with late-game free throws and all the kind of late-game variants you can get from a betting standpoint. But I don't think the Nebraska magic continues now. Yeah, last question. I, I need to know, did you get bad beated? Bad beat? Bad, did you get bad beat by the late free throw or late three-pointer by Kansas after the missed free throw by Iowa State? Because your analysis on the be- game was perfect. Yeah, yeah. I got the I got the opener on that one. I got Iowa State minus three and a half. That's what I was hoping. Okay, good. He, yeah, and listen, the, I think this is great advice for your listeners, for your viewers, and I've talked a lot about openers during this throughout this conversation uh, for each game. And I the one opener, or at least the one betting market that I have in question where it's going to open up is Kentucky, Tennessee, just because of all the question marks around Kentucky's injury report. But I, you look at that game, and that was where you pointed out perfectly that Iowa State should have covered and was in position to cover for pretty much maybe midway through the first half onward against Kansas. But that is a situation where late-game variance happens. You get Kansas just going uh, absurd from three over the last two minutes and change in that game, and that's where you can get bad beat it in college basketball when you're talking about not a pick em. so essentially who to bet on to win the game outright or even – over slightly over a full possession where where the line opened Iowa State minus three and a half and closed around minus four and a half five. So you really want to try to target openers if you believe the number is going to go up. And that may seem surface level, but like we saw with Iowa State, nothing is a lock. Gotta get line value and hopefully people listened to this last Friday and got Iowa State as soon as it opened and didn't get uh, on the wrong side of that bad beat. I could talk about this for hours, but we kept you too long. Appreciate you, Eli. TheLines.com. Follow him on X at Eli Herskovich. Appreciate your time. Yeah, good luck, guys. Hopefully no bad beats with St. John's or for your balls this weekend. No bad beats. No Thank bad you, beats, and hopefully balls on the money line <laughs> comes through. Appreciate you. Have a good one, guys.